Does God become angry with me when I sin? This is a very practical question. This is a question that many Christians, especially new Christians, wrestle with all the time. Is there a sense in which God becomes mad at me whenever I sin? In other words, is it possible for me to uh, displease God or or find myself uh, underneath the wrath of God in the case of my sin? Uh, now, you may be surprised to know that this question in in one way is is somewhat complicated to answer because we do encounter passages in Scripture that uh, certainly insinuate God's displeasure in the sin of his people. And so we need to recognize that. We need to be very honest and forthright about that. But most of the time when people have concerns and, and, and have this question, they're wrestling with questions of their own salvation. Is it the case that God's going to judge me for this sin? Is it the case that God is mad at me in, in a wrathful or, or judgmental way for this sin? And so that's what I'm really wanting to concentrate on here today. Welcome to the Baptist Broadcast. If you are listening, uh, thanks for tuning in. A Spotify, iTunes, Podcast Addict, you can find us anywhere uh, you get your podcasts, of course. Uh, if you're watching here on YouTube, please do not forget to click that subscribe button underneath the screen and the button, uh, the bell for continued notifications. Again, thanks for tuning in, guys. It's it's, glad, it's good to be back here. I took a week off last week, and uh, that's when uh, I was able to publish the episode uh, with Theocast, uh, John Moffat and Justin Perdue, which had been recorded a couple of weeks before. And so uh, that was that was great to be able to do that with those guys. I, I think want to thank Theocast and, and uh, uh, Justin and John once more for that opportunity. Uh, but that left me without much to do with regard to the podcast last week, because I just uploaded that video and published it. So it's good to be back here. Um, it's been very cold in Kansas City lately, unusually cold. Uh, in fact, on Sunday, uh, we ended up having to cancel services. Uh, it's the first time in five years I've I've ever sent an email to cancel a service, and uh, it wasn't it wasn't and it wasn't and it would have been much better to meet with the saints. Let's put it that way. It, it, those times away make you realize how much uh, uh, how much we need the fellowship and how much we need the the ordained uh, and ordinary means of grace. Um, and, and so that was we had a frozen drain pipe at the church and and uh, it temperatures on the interstate were around, if you're going about highway speeds, were around the gelling temperature, even for gasoline, and certainly for diesel around these parts of the country. And so um, we we uh, we decided it best because we have several members to who commute in f from different places, locations in the metro uh, that we would cancel. And so it was, um, it was, uh, you know, some dark providence, but that's okay. Uh, the Lord is good and, and carries us through it, and we're looking uh, forward all that much more to the following Sunday. So, um, does God get angry when we sin? What I want to do is I want to begin with God. Sometimes when we ask this question, we try to answer this question, we, we usually go and hunt for texts in Scripture that have to do with the gospel, uh, assurance of pardon, you know, texts that relate to the forgiveness of our sins, uh, and we, we go in and, and we locate assurance that way, which I'm not saying is wrong. I, I think we should do that, in fact, and, and I think pastors need to be uh, consciously um, uh, acting as the vehicles through which God's assurance of pardon to the elect, uh, to, to his people, uh, is proclaimed. Um, so, so don't hear me as saying that we, we shouldn't be finding texts and, and looking for texts and, and enjoying texts that, that proclaim our forgiveness of sins. But 
but actually what I want to do is, is something much more fundamental than that uh, and, and something that is much more um, foundational uh, even than the gospel in terms of our theological thinking, and that is I, w- I want to go to God himself. All right, so what is the cause of the gospel? Well, ultimately, you would have to say the cause of the gospel is God himself. It is God who has uh, determined to save man, right? And, and, and so it is God himself. So what I want to do is I want to start by looking at the character of God. And again, we're, we are, we are at, trying to answer the question as carefully as possible, does God get angry with me when, uh, when I sin? There are a couple of dangers here, um, that, and we want to avoid both of these dangers. One danger is that someone might say, well, since God doesn't get mad at me, if we answer, no, God doesn't get mad at you when you sin, uh, someone might say, well, then it doesn't matter if I sin. If there are no repercussions for my sins, then it, it really doesn't matter, and so we can sin all the more that grace might abound. You know that whole thing that Paul anticipates in Romans. The other danger is that we say, yeah, God does get mad at us. He does become mad at us when we sin, uh, and, and, and therefore you, you should anticipate some form of judgment even if you're in Christ. Uh, and, and vacuous becomes the notion of assurance, and uh, it's very difficult to, to find objective, grounded assurance whenever we're walking around thinking that, you know, God is analyzing every little you know, thought and deed that we do to see if we need to be struck down at that very moment kind of thing. Um, and so there are two two extremes that we want to avoid here, and I think if we stick to the text, we'll easily avoid the extremes. But something that I would want to say is, when we're talking about God's displeasure at sin, uh, and, and we're just talking very generally here, you know, uh, whether a person is a believer or an unbeliever doesn't really come into it at this point, just we're talking about God's general displeasure at sin. We're not talking about a, an emotion in God that spikes whenever someone sins. Okay, uh, that's a very um, humanistic way to look at God. Um, of course, we know that we, when we're displeased at something, that usually involves you know changes in emotions and and reflexes and responses and and sometimes you know responses that aren't so thoughtful, and, and, and that kind of thing. We're not talking about that in God. And, and so when we're talking about God's displeasure at sin, we're talking about, you know, God's eternal disposition toward that which is unholy, toward that which, you know, uh, is in opposition to his very nature. So um, I like to explain it, you know, from the perspective of the doctrine of divine simplicity. If God is his holiness, God just is holy— um, you can think of God as, as kind of, to put it in, in terms of an illustration, as a flame that never changes. He's hot, and he's burning because he's holy. He's pure. He's white fire, right? And um, anything that is um, not worthy of that fire, let's say, uh, it, that is brought into the presence of that fire will be consumed. Uh, and, and so it doesn't require necessarily a change in the flame, Right, it doesn't require an emo- Certainly, doesn't require an emotional change in the flame. Uh, it only requires a change in the thing that is brought into contact with the flame, right? And um, it, so, let's say you have uh, you have a, a piece of metal that has not been tempered to handle that kind of a flame, 
and you bring it into the presence of that flame and it, it melts the metal. Or at least it causes some kind of damage to the metal. Maybe the metal cracks or something like that with the immense temperature change. And so the, the flame didn't change. What changed is, is that piece of metal that was brought into the presence of the flame. Let's say that metal is now tempered. And we take that metal, we temper it, we, we, uh, we do what needs to be done to that metal in order to ensure that it can meet with the flame without any sort of damage. And so after that process, we bring that metal into the presence of that flame, and that metal coexists with that flame. You can run the metal through the flame, you can put the metal beside the flame, and, and we might say that the metal and the flame at that point have fellowship, right? Nothing is happening to the metal the, the flame's not changing, but what's what has changed is the metal. The metal has undergone a change that allows it now to be brought into the presence of this flame. So when we're when we're talking about believer and unbeliever, uh, God's eternal holiness and, and what God is, um, God doesn't change. What changes is the un, a person from being an unbeliever to being a believer. And what, what in, what's involved in that change? Well, what's involved in that change is an imputation of the righteousness of Christ, uh, a, a forgiveness of sins, you know, so sins no longer held against this person. Uh, and, and then that person is made worthy in Christ to be brought into the presence of the flame, to be brought into the presence of God. And so I think that's a helpful analogy. Now, I'm not saying that God's a flame. I'm not saying that, you know, it's an illustration. So, uh, take it for what it's worth. We know all illustrations and analogies break down at some point, especially in relation to infinity and things like that. So, um, but but I, I have found that to be a helpful illustration of the overall dynamic that we're about to talk about here. Does God get angry at me when I sin? Well, um, in one sense, God God is always displeased at sin. I mean, because God is holy, uh, and there may be certain natural. Uh, consequences for your sin if you're a Christian. And so in that sense, because we're living in God's world, we're we're navigating this creation, we, we, we are subject to uh, natural consequences for sin, just like anybody else is. Uh, you know, in that sense, we could say that we're experiencing God's displeasure for sin. God's constituted this world in accordance with his own nature, and and so even a Christian could, could say in, in a very qualified sense uh, that they've experienced something of God's displeasure for sin because there are, are natural consequences flowing from God's holiness woven into the creational fabric that ensure all people, no matter Christian or unbeliever, will experience consequences for sin to some extent, one extent or another. Um, and, and of course, we know that those who thwart those consequences will be held accountable at the very end. But if we're talking about, does God become angry at me? Like, is, is God happy with me one moment, and then I fall, you know, I sin, and then God becomes angry at me is the question really that we're getting at here. And I'm just going to positionalize myself at the very forefront here and say, no, absolutely not. First of all, God doesn't change. And, uh, and we want to talk about this from the character of the nature of God. So uh, Malachi 3.6, we're actually going to go there here. I've got a slide. Malachi 3.6 says, For I am the Lord, I do not change, therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Now, notice that there are, 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 are a couple things happening here. There's the first clause, which is God himself speaking, saying, I do not change. 
right? He's announcing who he is. I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I do not change. All right, so that's the first thing that's going on. The second thing that's going on, which is found in the second half of the verse, is a conclusion from the first premise. The first premise is, here's who God is. He's unchanging. Therefore, the conclusion drawn from that, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. All right, the Lord doesn't change. Therefore, his people who have his promises, right, his promises being grounded in his eternal nature, are not consumed. They're not consumed. Why? Because God doesn't change. So there's an immediate pastoral implication for the unchangingness or the immutability, we would say, of God. And, and to, to get more specific than that, uh, we would use the word impassibility. Impassibility means that God is not given to changes of passion uh, or what we would, what we might call emotional changes. So God is not uh, passable. He's impassable. This is what uh, the Second London Confession, uh, chapter 2, uh, paragraph 1 says, that God is without body parts or passions. And, uh, of course, it's saying that God is not composed of a, a physical body. Uh, he's not composed of any parts whatsoever. And he is without passions. That is to say, he's impassable. Uh, now, what that means is not that God is some lifeless, empty concept that's abstracted somewhere out there in the universe or outside of the universe. Right? It's, it's not leading us to think that God is cold and kind of uninvolved. Um, but, but what it does mean. The fact that God is not given to passions, I think, is brought out nicely in Malachi 3.6. God, God is not given to flings of emotional displeasure. Uh, so if his people uh, err, right, if his people uh, make a mistake or if his people fall into sin, God, is not, God does not undergo a transference from one state of emotional being to another state of emotional being, uh, implying that he now is angry at us and that his wrath burns hot against us. Now, I will say that the Old Testament, when you look back at the Old Testament, you see uh, the Jews who often are immediately judged upon their disobedience by God himself. But we have to remember that the Jews uh, under the Old Covenant are under what we would call a covenant of works. That means that the Mosaic Covenant especially is a covenant that obligates the Jews, the Israelites, to covenant, perennial covenant obedience before God. And, and should they deviate from that, doesn't mean they're not saved persons and won't be redeemed, but it does mean that they have broken that covenant, that covenant of works, which is meant to typify the gospel, right? It's not the gospel itself. It's looking forward to the gospel. If they violate that covenant, then they suffer the consequences that are instilled into that covenant or that or that flow from that covenant. So, you know, if God says, for example, you will obey my law or you will be put to death, then uh, a, a person who may be trusting in the Lord for their salvation and, and they may have their hope in God ultimately for their redemption and they will be in heaven with God through Jesus Christ or the Messiah that they're looking forward to that person can still suffer the temporal consequences woven into that covenant of works, the Mosaic covenant. Um, and so you do have instances in scripture where, you know, God's people, as they sojourn under this, this old covenant, and as they are a, a mixed population, some of them are believers, some of them aren't, but they're all brought into the same visible covenant community. They transgress God's covenant and, and they experienced temporal but immediate judgment. Uh, 
And so we do have instances like that. So you can't necessarily look at those instances and transfer them directly to our situation as a, a New Covenant church or, or, or New Covenant Christians. And the reason for that is because we're, we're no longer under a covenant of works, um, and, and we're under a covenant of grace. And though God's people could look forward to the Messiah who would establish the covenant of grace, and, and they could look through the types and the shadows of the Old Testament and, and trust in a, a saving object of their faith, which would be Christ or the Messiah himself— they yet lived in a situation or in a circumstance where they were under this visible old covenant that was designed and built to typify what was yet to come, which was the coming of the Messiah. And so when we do look back in the Old Testament, we do see God's wrath burning against God's covenant people, but we have to remember, number one, not all of Israel is Israel. That means, that that's to say that not everybody who is in the Old Covenant, in the Mosaic Covenant, was actually God's people. Uh, some of them were uh, rebels against God and, and God-haters, yet they were in the same covenant community in the Old Testament. Um, but it also means, secondly, that even believers in that covenant could experience the temporal consequences of that covenant should they transgress God's law. And so that notwithstanding, we're talking about salvific uh, matters here. We're talking about uh, something of a redemptive scale. The question, does God get angry at me when I sin? Does God get angry at me when I sin in the sense that he is now done with me? In, in the sense that he He is now turning his back on me? Does God get angry at me in the sense that um, that I'm nothing to him anymore? And and he has kind of forfeited his, his covenant love for me kind of thing. Uh, and the answer is no. The reason for that is because gospel promises that we believe as Christians and that are apprehended by faith alone, those promises are grounded in the unchanging nature of God himself, Malachi 3.6 again. And when I'm talking about, you know, the covenant promises that, that, that we have as Christians, I'm talking about new covenant promises, promises that exist for those who live under the covenant of grace or in the covenant of grace, and uh, these are, are displayed for us throughout the New Testament. They're, of course, prophesied in the Old Testament, and, and Old Testament believers had access to them by, by faith, albeit in a, in a dimly lit way or a more dimly lit way than we have today living under the, the New Testament or the New Covenant. But we see these displayed throughout, these promises displayed throughout the, uh, the New Testament. One is Romans 8.29. For whom he foreknew... He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Now, notice there's no there's no way in which we can break we, we can break this chain. And of course, in verse 30 is is what's sometimes been referred to as the golden chain of redemption. But if we're looking here at Romans 8:29, there's a pretty airtight connection between the foreknowledge of God, which is actual. It's it's not passive, it's not something that God is interpreting and 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 deciding, you know, is 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 this or that person going to believe in me? Well, then therefore I'll predestine them. No, this is a this is an active uh, verb on God's part. This is something that God does. It's his active knowing. And so the text reads, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined. And there's no, there's no vacuum, there's no space, there's no gap between foreknowledge and predestination here. He predestined them to be conformed to the image of his son. If they're predestined, 
they will be conformed to the image of Christ, and that insinuates union with Christ, that he, Christ, might be the firstborn among many brethren. Okay, so this is an example of a, a promise in the New Testament uh, or, or in the covenant of grace or the new covenant that we have access to and that we possess as Christians. And if we, if we possess this promise, like Paul says that all the promises are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Uh, so if we're in Christ Jesus, we possess this promise. If we possess this promise, it means, based on Malachi 3.6, that there is no time that God is going to become, because he never changes, he's never going to become angry with you such that he casts you off. Now, is there such a thing as, as fatherly chastisement? Of course. Of course, God sanctifies his people, and, and sometimes that, that entails um, discipline. Uh, whether that discipline is administered through you know, the natural world through natural consequences of sin, or whether it's discipline that's administered through the church, through something like formal church discipline. The father chastises those whom he loves. He, 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 he chides them as he would, as he would chide his own, uh, as, as, as a father, like, like an earthly father would chide his own son. And so in that sense, you could say as a Christian that you're experiencing the, the displeasure of God. But it, 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 again, this is, these are things that flow from um, God's nature. Uh, he's not, you know, moving from emotion to emotion based on your action. He doesn't change like that. He doesn't change at all. He, he remains the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. And so when you experience, you know, the divine chastisement, you know, that you're, you're, you're being disciplined in some way, well, that happens in the economy, that happens in this world, and it happens as a result of, of providence, general or special providence, um, and so, um, but it doesn't involve a change in God. God's not, God's not sitting up in the heavens, you know, judging you every second of your life, uh, deciding whether or not you're good, for, good enough for him. And the reason he's not sitting there judging you every second of your life, deciding whether or not you're good enough for him, is because if you're a Christian, you're in Jesus Christ, and he sees you through Christ. And that means that you are as righteous today as you will be in heaven, in God's sight. Okay. Um, you, in, in the sight of God, because he sees you in Christ, you are as righteous today as you will be in heaven. Look at what Paul says uh, to us by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Romans 8, 33 through 34. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Of course, the implied answer is no one. It is God who justifies. Uh, it's no one else. God justifies. Uh, who is he who condemns? No one. It is Christ who died. Now, pay attention to the language. It's very important language. Um, because this 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 text, it is Christ who died, is referring to a past event. It's work that's already been completed. It, it is Christ who died, and furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. This is the redemptive reality that every Christian has access to, and paired with the fact that God never changes, per Malachi 3.6 and other places in, in Scripture, we can have sure hope that God is not sitting in the heavens evaluating every second of our lives to see whether or not he needs to cast us off, right? 
In fact, he sees us through his son, who is perfect and who has accomplished the work in our place. And because God never changes, everything the son did for us holds true always. If you're a Christian in Jesus Christ, if you believe Jesus, if you trust in Christ, then it's not the case that you should be walking around thinking that the shoe is about to drop every second for your sin. Now, instead of taking that reality, if you're a true, again, if you're a true Christian, instead of taking that reality and using it for sin, right? Paul says, no, we don't sin just because grace abounds, right? And instead of using it for sin, instead of saying, well, because God's not going to get mad at me, I can just sin all the more. No, take that reality, that, that redemptive reality that required the suffering and death of the Messiah, of the very Son of God, um, the, the Savior that you claim to love as a Christian. Take that redemptive reality that is so sweet to the soul and understand that it is all the motivation you need to obey the law of God, right? Uh, and so then you, you you see what God has done for you, and you're thankful for what he has done for you, and you move forward in obedience to God. And whenever you fall, you realize who you are in Christ, you ask Jesus for forgiveness, and you move on, right? And you move on, and you obey thankfully. When you fall, wash, rinse, repeat, right? And and that is, that is the general pattern of the Christian life, and God is faithful. He's, he is going to increase the Christian in holiness. It's not going to be the same pace for everybody. Nobody's going to be perfect by the time they get to the end of this life. And so don't expect perfection. Don't expect your sanctification to move at the same rate as somebody else's sanctification. That's not the standard. Your standard is found in Holy Scripture. But the, the assuring matter here and the reality that we get from the text is that our unchanging God is unchanging. And because of that, his promises never fade away. The promises he said he he has given to us, that he has accomplished, uh, that he has gifted to us freely and, and without without charge, uh, apart from works, you know, Romans 4, 5 through 7, uh, those will never change because God never changes. And because those will never change, we know that we our pardon, our forgiveness of sins, that never changes right? Um, the imputed righteousness from Christ that, that qualifies us to stand in the presence of a holy God, that never changes, right? None of those things change. And if none of those things change and all of those things are yours in Jesus Christ, then never will you be cast off by God. That's such a, a, a blessing to understand. So, question, does God get mad at me when I sin? Well, if we're just talking about, you know, the general displeasure of sin in God because of his immense holiness. And we could say, yeah, God's God's never pleased with your sin. He doesn't look at your sin and think, you know, oh, I'm pleased with that, right? At the same time, in terms of your status in the Lord Jesus Christ, God will never get mad at you or angry at you. God never changes, right? He's he's holy and you have been brought into the presence of a holy God through Jesus Christ. You are like that metal that has been worked and formed and 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 prepared such that now you can be brought into fellowship with that white hot and holy flame. And and that will never change. All right. So so what gracious 
immense and and marvelous promises we have access to because of this unchanging God. I mean, think about these high theological doctrines. Um, immutability, impassibility, right? The fact that God never changes, the fact that God is not given to emo- changes in emotional states of being, uh, one emotion to the next, you know, that's not in God, that doesn't happen in Him. Um, you know, divine simplicity is another one that would suggest that, you know, God is is all that is in God is God. So God's holiness is God. Uh, God's love is God. And so that never changes. His love for you never changes. His holiness never changes. His righteousness never changes. Um, and so that's a great source of assurance as well. And think about how all of those lofty doctrines that are so complicated to, to discuss on some level can be brought down off the off the cookie shelf, so to speak, and 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 brought here to a level wherein every saint on this planet can can enjoy it, can enjoy these doctrines, and and can um, and can love these doctrines, and and derive a great deal of assurance from them. God never changes; therefore, we are not consumed, O Christian. God bless. If this was helpful, please share it. If it helped you, maybe it'll help somebody else. And if you're not subscribed to the channel yet, please do uh, get that done. Click that subscribe button and the bell for continued notifications. God bless you guys. Have a wonderful rest of your day.